This is Tiffany Coates. I'm here with Andy Jukes and we're going to ride and talk. Greetings all and great to have you back. Have we got a cracking podcast for you today? If you Google Tiffany Coates BMW, you get this really cool unscripted video of her extolling the virtues of motorcycle adventure travel. And at the end she says, I'm Tiffany Coates and I'm from nowhere, which kind of sums her up nicely. I first interviewed Tiffany 20 years ago, soon after she'd returned from her very first motorcycle trip with her best friend, riding two up on a quarter-ton BMW R80 GS called Thelma. With just two months of riding experience between them, they'd wobbled out of the UK and across Europe all the way to India. That first journey was supposed to last nine months, but once they reached Delhi, they found they couldn't stop and so they ended up crossing four continents and staying on the road for two and a half years. Since then, Tiffany's basically kept on going, and down the long and winding road of life, she's established a reputation as the world's foremost female motorcycle adventurer, with a passion for travel that has taken her far and wide on journeys such as England to Australia, Cape Town to Cairo, Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, London to Tibet, Central Asia, Siberia and outer Mongolia, the list goes on. Almost all her travels have been undertaken on that same BMW R80 GS that is still carrying her around the world today. She's been chased by wolves and stampeding elephants, and she's fled from volcanoes, hurricanes and sandstorms, but she loves nothing more than venturing to some of the planet's most remote places while camping and just getting away from it all. But, like the rest of us, she too was stuck at home back in March, with that old trusty GS Thelma locked away in the woodshed for the foreseeable future. No one was going anywhere far. But it did give us a good chance for a chat though, and one I know you'll enjoy. So let's have a listen. Lovely to have you here, Tiffany. Who'd have guessed when I first interviewed you back in the year 2000 that you'd still be living the same life two decades later? It's incredible, really. I would never have thought it was feasible back then and I have to admit though I do sort of pinch myself sometimes and think where on earth did all those years go and here I am still traveling still finding new destinations to explore and amazingly for a lot of you still riding the same motorbike that's the amazing thing I think when I first met you you'd, it was a few months after you'd come back from your around the world ride that you admitted yourself you were ill-prepared for at the time, but you'd bought this R80GS for... Um, what year was, was Thelma from? 19... Thelma is a 1992. 1992. Bike. You'd bought this bike. Now, how many miles has Thelma got on her now? Ooh, crikey. Uh, Thelma now has 224,000, just over. So just tell me a little bit about your relationship with this bike, about, you know, the... The miles, the reliability, how she makes you feel, all of that sort of stuff. Well, it's been it's been a very much a working relationship um, as a totally novice rider with just five days experience on a one two five. When I did my intensive training and then took my test, I then went out and. I was due to go travelling with my best friend Becky and we went out and bought an R80GS secondhand, sight unseen, but a mechanic friend had checked it out and that's how Thelma came into my possession. 
And so it was, it did feel sort of quite a, a fast process of all of a sudden riding this quarter turn bike, heading off around the world. Well, we were only supposed to go as far as India, but we didn't seem to stop there. And learning how to off-road as we went along, learning how to pack a bike properly as we went along, and the maintenance as well. And now I look back on all these different countries and continents that we've crossed, and it just feels incredible. Thelma is the only vehicle I've ever owned. I never owned a small bike. I never had a car. And still, I ride every day. That's amazing that you you must have had a lot of trust in the mechanic because... I think you knew nothing about BMW GS at the time. It, you you literally went, like you say, sight unseen, and you gave it a go. But did you you had no idea what you were getting into potentially? Oh, I looking back on it, it does seem somewhat unbelievable that we had no idea what we were buying. Really, this was the late nineties, and we just knew we wanted to go to India, and we would go by motorbike and. We didn't have much money, so we said, right, well, we'll take one motorbike between us. It's obviously a lot cheaper. It's simpler. You can't lose each other when you're both on the same bike. And we were both the same level of inexperience that we're quite happy to share the riding because we're as bad as each other. So people said, well, there's only a couple of bikes really that would be suitable for that kind of journey. Obviously, coming forward 20-odd years now, there are so many different bikes that would be appropriate for that journey far more appropriate for people of our size to ride as well however we were told an r80 or r100 gs would be the perfect bike for a trip like that and i always remember someone did say well they're a bit big and heavy but ideal for two people two up with all their camping gear to cross all that varied terrain and thousands of miles to india so that was the bit that stuck in my brain it would be ideal And a mechanic friend of ours knew we were looking out for one and then got in touch and said, oh, yes, I know someone with selling a secondhand R80 GS. It had 22,000 miles on it. He knew the bloke and said he's a good bloke. And he also knew the bike. So this is our mechanic friend. And he said it's got a sound engine. So we just thought, well, we can't go wrong. And we'd been looking out for a while because people tend to hold on to bikes like that. When they've bought a GS, they do keep them. So we were just very excited. Wow, here's one available. But we had to make a decision there and then. And um, over the phone, we said, yes, okay then. And we went round the next day with the cash. And then that's when we first saw a GS. And we're like, oh, yes, they are quite big, aren't they? And oh, we are on tiptoes to reach the ground. And crikey, have you felt that weight of it? But it's turned out to be the right decision. Absolutely. I guess you know every single nut and bolt on that bike now, don't you? Well, there will always be breakdowns. I mean, who has a bike for 20 years that has never, ever broken down? So various breakdowns in different remote corners of the world. And sometimes there'll be something that will go wrong several times before we get the ideal repair done. But if you're away on the road for months and months at a time you're not always going to be at a BMW dealership to get the work done. It's more often going to be some guy with a little tin tray of tools that sometimes look like they're out of the arc, and he'll just be hitting the bike, bang, 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 and trying to do a repair in his own way just to keep you going on the road. 
And that's the beautiful so, thing about the old bikes, isn't it? You know, you can literally bodge a few repairs and, and continue your journey. And that's that's one of the things that's very, very special about these old GSs. Oh, absolutely. The old GSs, they do just keep going. And like I say, with the villages that the mechanic might have never seen a big bike in their lives, but they'll have a look and they'll go, oh, pistons, carburetor. It's like a car. And I'll say, yes, it is like a car bang, 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 and they'll produce a broken part and they'll hold it up and say, mm, this is the broken bit. Now, in the UK, we would go ahead to the parts department and say, we need this part, get it sent out, get it fitted. In various other parts of the world, it could be Mozambique or Mongolia, they'll have a look and they'll say, well, either they can repair the part or they've got a cousin with a machine shop in the next town who can make that part or actually, looking at this part, you know what? We use something like that in our Toyotas locally. And they'll trot off to the market and come back with a part that looks very, very similar. They'll slot it into place and it'll work. So Thalma has actually run with parts out of Toyota, Mazda and some Russian car that I can't even pronounce the name of. So she just, yeah, we'll slot in these parts, put them in and carry on with our travels. There'll be a point further on that we'll actually be able to get a genuine part back in again. But I have come back to the UK and the guys at Sherlock's in Devon who do my work on Thelma, they'll say, we can't actually work out what this part came from because all the writing on it is in Cyrillic. And uh, where on earth did you pick up that piece? And I'll be like, oh, yes, well, that might have been Siberia. Absolutely brilliant. Now, that original journey... Going back, like you say, more than 20 years and you and Becky, a couple of months after passing your test, no knowledge, didn't know what you're getting yourselves into. A lot of people are afraid to take those first tentative steps, but that was pure adventure, wasn't it, looking back? Oh, definitely. Life is for living and there's always been journeys and travels that I've wanted to do. It was blind ignorance, perhaps, that led us to adventure we just optimistically said, we're going to get our licences, buy a motorbike and go to India. Now, you don't get much simpler than that. And our simple story turned into an around-the-world adventure of itself with crossing four continents and having an absolute ball and realising that travel on two wheels gives you the independence and freedom to go wherever you want. And Yes, the fact that we'd literally only been riding for two months when we set off, I think stood us in good stead because there is such a thing as knowing too much or anticipating problems. But we just had blind faith that here's a bike that runs and it runs well and we're just going to set off. If things go wrong, we'll just have to ask for help along the way. And that's exactly how it unfolded. Things do go wrong, but you persevere, you get the thing sorted out. And you get there to your destination. Who was it who said that you have some of your best adventures when things are going wrong? Some of your best memories that you create? It might have been Ted Simon. It probably was Ted Simon, actually. You know, when you're often in a little bit of adversity, that's when the amazing stories happen to you. Yes, yes. And when things do go wrong, it does tend to become an epic and not just, oh, well, this has gone wrong, that's it. It will become an epic that unravels over a day or several days when just as you think oh 
nothing else could possibly go wrong with this whole situation, and it does. Now, obviously, you've been travelling ever since then, on and off. Have you ever stopped and worked out how many countries, how many thousand miles or kilometres, how much time away from home? Have you ever done any stats on any of that sort of stuff? Well, no, I'm I'm obviously not very good at counting things up. Um, The mileage is approximate and it's um, a conservative estimate because I've broken a couple of speedos, had a couple of speedo cables snap. And one of the speedos, well, wolves were chasing me in Labrador and the front wheel did hit a bit of a rock quite hard and obviously I was just worried about the wolves chasing me so just kept going but I remember at that point riding along that Labrador gravel track and watching my speedo needle just dropping and I'm thinking oh no I'm gonna have to start trying to count my miles again and um, so various mishaps like that where Thalma no longer faithfully counts each mile has meant there's been some guesswork to do I think it's been easier for me, if I needed to, to add up how much time I've spent away from home, on the road, living on my bike, and it it comes into the years, definitely. And of all the time you've been away and all of the trips that you've done, would you say that the world's changed a lot since that original trip on the R80? There would be some some people who can see it as changing an awful lot. And I think we've all become more aware and perhaps better informed about the situations in different countries. And in some ways that's created more unease or more fear in people. But I think, on the other hand, the things that haven't changed is setting off in a sort of blissful ignorance of what to think about, what to worry about, just setting off with that belief that, Okay, we'll deal with deal with each situation as it happens. In a lot of ways, it has changed. Communications have improved, infrastructures have improved, and we all seem to know instantly what's happening on the other side of the world. Whereas when we first set off, um, my family wouldn't hear from us for weeks. We would send letters. I very rarely phone home when I'm away partly because of old school travel and it used to cost an absolute bomb to cost to phone home um i can remember back in yugoslavia back in the day and it was something like six pounds a minute to phone home and it was my mum's birthday and i thought oh my goodness how can i keep this phone call to just two minutes and that was my daily budget gone on one phone call so not so the communications have improved and we're a lot more aware of about situations in other parts of the world and generally it seems to be the scary situations um, the things that are going wrong in different areas but actually so much hasn't changed people are still people and when you travel you do rely on the kindness of strangers and if you're not prepared to rely on others then it can make for some very uncomfortable traveling so it's about being open to the friendliness and generosity you'll find from people that sometimes you don't even share a common word of language with, but they're always happy to help travellers. And it's about trusting and listening and just going with the flow. Can anyone do it? Can anyone ride around the world? 
I honestly believe that anyone can ride around the world on any bike. You've just got to want to do it. And I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Is the world still worth exploring? You know, every bit as much now as it was then, in your opinion. Oh, that's an interesting question. I I would definitely 100% say yes, because we've all got our own adventures we want to do, whether it's a weekend ride around Wales or a transcontinental journey to Beijing. And although the places we're going through might become a bit more sophisticated and they're more aware of, oh, that's a motorbike, oh, that's a BMW... There are always places that we want to visit as individuals and it's always do it, worth doing those explorations. I know there's so many places I still want to go and see. And you asked earlier about how many countries I've been to on my bike and it's, it's in the 80s, I know that much. And there's still a lot more places I want to discover and it doesn't matter how world-weary you think other countries and regions are becoming actually you'll still always be a traveler and it will always be a journey of adventure for you you spoke a little bit earlier about the kindness of strangers and how people almost always will always open themselves up and help you in terms of opening up is it quite a difficult thing for people to do do you think to make that mental leap to allow themselves to be in those very very unfamiliar situations that you get on the road where It's completely out of your comfort zone. It very much depends on the individual. Certainly it's something I'm comfortable with, having grown up moving around, living on different army bases around the world. I grew up always being in new environments where I don't know people, but realising you've just got to make friends from scratch. And actually it is quite easy to make friends wherever you are in the world. You might not have any languages in common but a smile goes a long way and so it is about trust and it's trusting those around you but I think more importantly it's about trusting your own judgment and knowing that I've got reasonable judgment and I'm coming across different people who are all offering to help and it's so often that you'll be accepting an offer of help from 99% of the people and maybe just occasionally that 1% that you're thinking this doesn't feel quite right so I'll just make my polite excuses because after all I'm very British in that way and perhaps do something different but yes it it is about trust and not everyone is comfortable about putting themselves or their motorbike in someone else's hands. Would you say that the less that people have the the more they're able to give in terms of help I'd say that's a really good way of putting it the people with the fewest possessions and the lowest levels of materialism are the ones who are the most giving and interestingly in many parts of the world particularly going through Africa they're quite often the happiest people So going through villages in Sudan where the locals had nothing that they could give us beyond water from the well, some beans to eat, and we're not talking Heinz baked beans either, talking about beans they've grown themselves, dried and then boiled up with a bit of salt. And they'll happily share that. And yet when we get to places where... 
perhaps our own countries, where there are people who are much wealthier, they seem a bit more suspicious of strangers and a bit more scared, perhaps, about what could be taken from them. So less open to giving. So the more you have, the more you're afraid of losing, is what it seems. Does that make you think that maybe people are a little bit afraid of chasing their own dreams as well because they're afraid of what they might lose in that process? It would depend on your, I suppose, your motive for travel. Yeah, for some people to travel successfully, they need to sometimes let go of things a bit and not be so concerned about the chrome on their motorbikes or the pristine fuel tank. When I look at Thelma's fuel tank with its dents and gouges in it and each one's got a story to tell and for me that's part of the beauty of my bike that I'll look at it and think oh yes yes that was that big fall in the river that created that dent so I'll always be able to repair the bike and you can get bikes restored to pristine condition but I can't see I would ever do that and You've just got to go with the flow on travel. And going with the flow, obviously, that's what you did very much so right from the beginning. But in terms of riding skills, it's perfectly possible to develop these while you're on the road, isn't it, as well? You know, to learn by making mistakes, I guess. I do think I am probably a classic example of that, that when we set off right from the start, we were riding two up and I hadn't realised how unusual that can be for a start. Um, But because it's something we did the whole time. So I learnt to ride motorways two up. Uh, I learnt to ride off-road two up. I learnt to cross rivers and deserts and mountains. And it helped having two of us on it because actually the one on the back would be calling out instructions or just keeping up that mantra, particularly for off-road, of revs up, revs up. And there could be every nerve in your body is screaming, slow down, slow down. But actually there are times when you've got to keep those revs up to keep that forward momentum, whether it's through sand, gravel or water. When are you at your most happiest? Oh, I love that question because for me, I find it really easy to answer. And it would be camped somewhere remote with a wonderful view, no sign of anybody else. And just that feeling of freedom and enjoyment of the great outdoors. I love it down here in Cornwall. But when you're away, do you miss home? I feel like I have such a lucky balance in my life. I live in the most beautiful part of the UK and no doubt there's people going, what? No, she doesn't. So I'll always have itchy feet. I do realise that. There'll always be places I want to go and see and I'll travel there and I'll see the most incredible views and meet people with the most amazing lives And at the end of that journey, though, I'm always happy to come home again because I live somewhere that is also just as beautiful. And being by the ocean as well really answers a need in me for what I want out of life. So 
I'm always happy to come home and I do always miss it. There's always a sense of homesickness when I first set off on a trip. And I know that will very quickly wear off, but I'm always happy coming back again. And you also work as a freelance guide. I'm not sure if that's what you call it, but on a a wide range of motorcycle adventures. You've done so much travelling alone in the past, but do you enjoy, on those trips, sharing your experiences with others? It took me a while to get into the mindset of becoming a guide. I was offered a job, and I said, oh, no, thank you, and I'm not sure that's for me. And then after a few years, I'd done some more travels, and I thought, actually, I feel differently about it now. And so I checked, and they said, oh, yes, there's work for you if you want it. So that was 10 years ago now, and I haven't looked back. My main motivation for doing the tour guiding is sharing my passion for motorbike travel and igniting the enthusiasm in others as well, whether it's riding the road of death in Bolivia or it's crossing deserts in Africa and enabling people to experience it and to enjoy it to the same level that I enjoy it and just seeing that difference in people's faces. And inspiring others, as you've just mentioned, that's obviously important. But is it also important for you to inspire other women? People ask about role models and it was pre-internet when we set off and we just assumed, oh, there must be plenty of people doing this sort of thing because we don't know anything about motorbikes and we're heading off to do this. And in retrospect, we realised there's not an awful lot of other people. But it didn't matter whether they were male or female. There didn't seem to be the role models out there when we did set off. But now I find myself being a bit of a role model. And it's a very important part for anyone's riding, but particularly for women who ride, to realise that we're all capable of any journey that we want to undertake And it is about the desire to do it and having the confidence in yourself. And sometimes that's also reliant on having the support of those around you. And I think for many people that is the biggest barrier, is overcoming the worries and fears of those who hold us dear and just being able to say, trust me, I can do this, I can take care of myself And I can go and undertake these travels and have a great time. So definitely um, getting more women riding motorbikes and enabling them to see that they can go anywhere that they want to. Tell me about the the Women Riders World Relay that you're involved in. Ah, yes. It's... um, so the Women Riders World Relay was started by Hayley Bell, who had an idea about starting this relay where a baton would be carried around the world by women riders and with each country it passed through it would be passed from hand to hand by different teams of female riders and it took off and it it traveled a long way but it also traveled exponentially in people's minds and imaginations for what could be achieved as Thousands and thousands of women became involved and were following it and thousands carried it as well. And it set off from John O'Groats and 12 months later it made its way around the world across every continent and came back into Land's End having travelled over 60,000 miles. 
And then I had the honour of carrying the baton up to London to the grand finale, first of all to the bike show in London and then on to the big party for the end of the relay at the bike shed and riding into the bike shed, carrying that baton and arriving there on Thelma was a massive thrill. So the audience were there cheering and it was it was phenomenal and the effect it's had on female riders around the world has been immense ah that's brilliant and you also received an invitation to the house of lords recently didn't you for your, for some kind of tea and recognition of your solo travel exploits what, what was it all about that's very british but how wonderful oh that was um that was such a thrill yes i uh, were received this invitation to go and have afternoon tea at the House of Lords. So I um, borrowed some clothes, dusted myself down and went off to London. And yes, it was in recognition of my solo travels and also the role I have in teaching self-defence. And I specialise in training people to become more aware about their personal safety and how to keep themselves safe and in particular when traveling so enabling those who want to travel to feel more comfortable and safer whilst on the road so it was yeah all around those different issues and the contribution I'd made to that. With the world metaphorically at least getting smaller and the the ability to call for help would you say that the overlanding community is probably the 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 most welcoming community in the world oh the camaraderie of the community is fantastic and in fact even now with the whole situation going on with covid19 the help that's being sent out around the world people sending messages and because I'm one of those rather annoying people that once they've got your address, they stay in touch. So in the old days, it'd be Christmas cards and postcards. These days, it's email addresses. And I'll hear of someone having some issues in Uganda, for example. And I'll say, oh, yes, yes, I know a couple of people in Uganda. I'll put you in touch with them. Um, so helping out others. But also just that great feeling when I've had things go not quite according to plan while I've been on my travels and people have stepped in and taken us home and helped repair my bike given me somewhere to stay all these different things where if you're a motorcyclist and a traveler you know what it's like to be at the mercy of others and the mercy of the elements and so just the difference it can make to have someone welcome you they've never met you before but they'll welcome you to their home and there's a few people stuck at the moment, aren't there? Oh, there's so many who are stuck at the moment. Gradually, they seem to be getting home okay, but I, I know people on every continent who are stuck. What's the furthest you've ever gone on a set of tyres? The furthest I've ever gone on a set of tyres? I would say probably 13,000 miles. London to Ulaanbaatar. And that was mostly two up. I had my one of my mum's friends on the back of the bike, and that was in summer. And there was a lot of quite a lot of off road as well because that was through um, Central Asia, so places like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And um, the t- yeah, the, I had Metzler Turant's tires on, and they lasted all the way there. Thirteen thousand miles, I think. So that's close on 
was that 20,000 kilometres? Yes, yes, yeah. that probably would be about 20,000 wow. kilometres. And there was still, certainly the rear tyre needed changing, but um, the front tyre still had some life on it. So how long can you keep going then, this wonderful life? I never say never on anything, so I'll keep riding as long as I want to. And I sort of realised that actually I can't see myself changing my bike any day soon. So when I reach my 70s or 80s, and maybe Thalma's a bit tricky to hold up right, maybe I'll find her a bit heavy then, that I'll just get a sidecar fitted to her and carry on riding. How many people have tried to uh, offer a good price for Thalma or to buy it from you? Oh, there have been quite a few people over the years. And in fact, in the US, they wanted to put Thalma in a BMW museum. But I said, well, actually, I'm still halfway through a journey, so I'll have to finish this journey with Thalma and I'll let you know. As she's not ready to go, not ready to be retired to a museum yet, is she? I can't see that happening, no. And neither are you. And how important is it for you to keep these, keep making these memories? I don't really think about it as making memories. It's a curiosity and it's about satisfying my curiosity. So... Last year, for example, I went off to Borneo. For a long time, I'd been thinking, oh, I do want to go to Borneo. So last year, I headed off there, and it was to satisfy my curiosity about the people and the jungles and the orangutan and the beauty of the island. So I suppose then it does create memories, and there's always more places that I feel that little tinge of curiosity about. It's that word, isn't it? Curiosity. Oh, yes, every time. So where would you say your ambitions lie now, then? What have you still got on your bucket list? (laughs) If I started trying to produce a list, I think it would never stop. But there is part of me that feels, and I've said this a couple of times, there's the joining up of the dots. So I've done quite a lot of transcontinental journeys and I've crossed Africa sort of one and a half times. And... Part of that half would be joining up the dots between northwest Africa, so from the border of Burkina Faso, heading down to Angola. That would def- That's definitely something I want to achieve because when I look at the map on the back of Thelma's top box and there's Africa and there's sort of dots all over Africa, but there's this gap there. So I think I'd like to go there. And plus to see some of those wonderful countries on the way, especially Cameroon and, dare I say it, Congo. I know it has its challenges, but I'd be ready to try them. And I'm sure you will. It's been lovely talking to you, Tiffany. Thanks ever so much for coming on Ride and Talk. Thank you very much for having me here. Thanks again, Tiffany. It was great to catch up after all these years. And I'm kind of envious that you really have managed to make your life a ride good on you and long may it continue unlike our podcast which we've got to bring to a close for now but if you enjoyed hearing about tiffany's travels then we've got much more where that came from so why not subscribe now if you haven't already and the next podcast will be there waiting for you as soon as we publish it better still why not give us a rating if you like what we're doing it helps people find us sales pitch over then i hope you have a wonderful day whatever you're doing and sincere thanks for listening bye for now